We're in Psalm 105, and the reason we're doing this, first of all, is because since we don't have class next week, we're going to have a little gap. So I didn't want to start a new book um, yet. But I did want to get to this psalm because these three psalms all relate to First Chronicles, where we just were, in a very unusual way. So Psalm 105, the, the first, uh, let's see, there are 45 verses. This would be the first third, is that right? The first third of Psalm 105 is quoted verbatim in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 18 to 22. The, it's, it's David's song of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and, uh, or is it the other way around? Let me come back to that point in a minute. But the same words are used in two places. Not the only place that happens in the Bible, but here. In Psalm 106, then, these verses are quoted verbatim in 1 Chronicles 16, the same prayer by David. And then Psalm 96, everything in between is quoted uh, <laughs> of, 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 of those other two psalms in another psalm uh, by, by King David. Uh, so it's a, a curious, fascinating uh, phenomenon here that, 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 that goes on. So um, uh, the question is, did David write 1 Chronicles 16, that prayer first, and then break it up into three psalms? Or did he take three oldies but goodies from the hit parade and combine them into one big psalm? And the answer is... Don't know. Uh, but what I do know is David did it. So uh, uh, all four pieces, First Chronicles 16, the prayer in First Chronicles 16, Psalm 96, Psalm 105, Psalm 106 are all by David. So whether or not David did the one first or whether he combined or whether he broke apart or whatever, I don't know. There are some commentators who say it's more likely that it was one than the other, and I don't care. Let's just read it. Is that okay? All right. Um, so, uh, uh, the Psalms, if you don't know this already, um, and this is new to people of all walks of life, is that the Psalms are broken up into five books. And if you read your NIV or your EHV or whatever, it'll be in there. You'll see it. Right ahead of Psalm 1, it'll say, Book 1, Psalms 1 to 41. Um, and uh, the, those Psalms in Book 1 were uh, uh, collected by somebody, and almost everybody in the world says it was probably Ezra. Um, uh, if, you are in, if you're taking a quiz and there's a weird question, who did this? Uh, the answer is usually Ezra. They lay everything at the feet of Ezra. You know, who, who, who gathered the Proverbs into the order that we have them? I don't know, Ezra. Who gathered, you know, who wrote First Second Chronicles? I don't know, Ezra. Who gathered the Psalms into the order? We, I don't know, Ezra. So that's a pretty good answer for a lot of things. Um, uh, so book one is Psalms 1 to 41. They're almost all by David, and they tend, in fact, they all use Lord rather than God. In the, in, the, in the psalm itself. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Psalm 23, right? Is that in the group here? Yeah. So 
Psalm of David uses Lord. Book two, Psalms uh, 42 to 72, also by David mostly, and they use God rather than Lord, almost exclusively. For example, uh, my, uh, my favorite hospital psalm, um, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. Psalm 62, so also from that group. Also, the, the last psalm of that group, Psalm 72, uh, not by David, it's by Solomon. How many psalms did Solomon write that we have in the Bible? It's only two, actually. It's only two. Um, with David, it's more than half of the psalms, but Solomon just two. Then book three by other authors. These are psalms between 73 and 89. A lot of them are by an author named Asaph, and most of the rest of them are by a group called the Sons of Korah. Um, I have a lot of things to say about both of those groups, but not today. Uh, book four are, are Psalms 90 to 106, and that's where our psalm is today from that group. Is, I call it Israel under Moses. Different commentators don't know what to call it, but it starts with Psalm 90, which is written by Moses, and it ends with a bunch of psalms about the Exodus. So I, I like to say it's Israel under Moses. I think that's a fair title. It's not exactly perfect, but it's I think it's pretty good. And then book five is Psalm 107 to the end, that is to Psalm 150, and those are praise psalms. Most of the psalms that have the word hallelujah, or which is praise the Lord in Hebrew, are in that group, except ours, Psalm 105, ends also with hallelujah. So it's outside of the group. But I, I kind of wonder about that sometimes. You know, we, we're used to having... First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Could we have First, Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth Psalms? You know, we could, and it might help some of us to remember where some Psalms are. If you know, oh no, that's the beginning of Fourth Psalms, Psalm ninety, right? Except we wouldn't call it that. We would call it Fourth Psalms, Chapter One. So that'd be weird. You'd have a bunch of Psalms that are labeled Psalm One. You know, and so forth. But all right, all right. Let's uh, let's keep going. This, this Psalm 105 is uh, outlined this way. Uh, I don't know if I have this on your sheet. Maybe I don't. Um, but there's an opening praise. This is called a chiasm. And what a chiasm means is that pieces from the outside relate to each other, and then the next piece down. So in in this one. Uh, the opening praise and closing praise relate to each other. And then in the next uh, group, the promise of the covenant is related to the fulfillment of the covenant. And then the third piece, the Lord's protection is directly related to the Lord's protection, um, which is where the, the retelling of the plagues comes in, we're going to talk about today. And then in the middle is the Lord's providence. I've tried to illustrate this with the indenting, with the indenting also. Um, you know, but this is a classic, typical way that a lot of things in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, both Hebrew and Greek, um, arrange things. I had a professor who was taking a class on some, some Old Testament book, and he had a very cynical uh, professor. This is at, a, at one of those universities where our men have to go to get their doctorates because we don't give doctorates in the wells. So our guys have to go elsewhere to get their doctorates. And he was there doing his class, and, and, uh, 
and, uh, and he had to do a presentation on whatever chapter it was. And I remember that he said, um, oh, and, uh, and of course, this is a chiasm, which is what I've just explained to you. But some of those cynical public you know, or, or university professors, they get so tired of hearing that the guy threw his pen up in the air and said, well, what in the Bible isn't a chiasm? And he was just kind of very cynical about that. But the, the things you have to go through. Um, yikes. Um, let's just get right to the psalm here. First three verses. And I'm, we're going to stay in these verses for a little while. Um, there's some things I want to point out here. But give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make his deeds known among the peoples. Sing to him. Make music to him. Meditate on all his wonders. Take pride in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Um, before we get to breaking up these three verses, I want to point out, here, there's a couple different words for miracle here. Make his deeds known. And then in the verse 2, meditate on all his wonders. And if you, I have this on your handout, but it's also on the screen here. So in, in this psalm, there are five different words for miracles. Um, there is niflot, wonders, which means amazing deeds. That also is the word in Hebrew that is closest to our word miracle. Just an amazing thing. Then there is um, otot, or signs, deeds that show God's power and strength. Then there's, um, I'm sorry, I misspelled it. It should be mishpatim, not mishmatim. So I, you've got your Hebrew wrong on your handout, I'm sorry. But mishpatim is the third one. Mishpat are the judgments. Um, um, am I right that mishpatim is also the name of the book of Judges? I think that's right. Um, and then uh, you've got moftim, or omens, things that surprise us or frighten us. People at ancient times saw omens in all kinds of things. Oh, clouds, uh, what's the Carol King saw? Cloud, uh, coffee, right, clouds in my coffee. And uh, 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 um, the flights of birds, tea leaves. Right, um, the afterbirth of a goat. Uh, they're all the stars, all kinds of things with omens. Oh, uh, 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 um, comets and meteors and shooting stars and things regarded as omens and things like that. Um, but in the Bible, just something that surprises or frightens. Remember when uh, there were two? It was a, a married couple in the Book of Judges that didn't have a baby, and the angel of the Lord shows up. And right when they're going to feed him, he steps into the fire and vanishes. That's a pretty good trick. That's an omen. Um, wow kind of a thing, uh, a sign. You know who their son was? Samson. Yeah. And then the last one, pronounced alioth, or works, that's supernatural deeds. It really is just a word for works, but according to context, it can be a deed that's also a wonderful deed, like a miracle or wonder, something like that. Um, but here, I want to point out something about these three verses. First of all, I've got three words at the top of the screen. Pray, which would include give God praise. We're talking to God there, right? Meditate, which can be to ponder, or I'm going to use the word study. And then preach. And those are three different things, aren't they? Pray, meditate, preach. And those are three things I do all the time. But let's look at these verses 
And I'd like to go line by line and you tell me which one is being described. Get it? Okay, so first of all, give thanks to the Lord. Which one especially? Pray, right? Pray or praise him. Proclaim his name. Especially preach, right? Make his deeds known among the peoples. Also preach. In fact, those are parallel terms. Proclaim his name, make his deeds known among the peoples. It's called synthetic parallelism, parallelism, where you take a thought and then you say it again and add to it. That's synthetic parallelism. Next one, sing to him, make music to him. Praise. What else do we do when we're making music? If, if you're by yourself, you're meditating. I said preach. It could be really all three, couldn't it? Um, I, th- I think of uh, Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas in, in jail. How do they preach to the prisoners? They sing. Next one, meditate on all his miracles or wonders. Meditate. That's where I got the word from. I, I, yeah. Take pride in, oh, but also pray. Meditate on all his wonders. Um, and uh, 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 um, did I skip one? I guess I just put the line in. That's okay. Take pride in all, our, where am I going here? Take pride in his holy name. It's maybe all? Yeah, uh, pray, meditate, <clears throat> preach, all of these things. Um, um, when I'm privately at home, uh, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the part of my prayers where I'm, you know, asking forgiveness for sins and things, um, when you confess your sins and worship, you get to hear the preacher pronounce forgiveness, right? When I'm alone doing confession, you know, uh, I don't hear that. Um, I have to say it to myself and remember it myself. It helps to have a passage or a prayer. Um, uh, so, and in dark moments, you forget. That's why it's good for pastors to go away to conference, you know, and have circuit meetings. And, and we have a staff and we give each other a communion. You know, that helps. And then let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. I think mainly pray and meditate. It could be preach also. But um, I, that's, that's an interesting exercise. Uh, once in a while, something like that. Go through. Let's just uh, go through a couple of verses here and notice some things. Search, verse 4. Search for the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Um, that phrase, seek his face. Uh, it struck me because we're in the first week of catechism here. The second lesson is tomorrow and uh, one of the main passages at the very beginning of the catechism year is Acts 17, 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to, for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So why does God give us uh, signs of him in nature? So that people would get it that there's a God. You know, that's, we call that the natural knowledge of God. The, the, the um, shortcoming of the natural knowledge of God for sinful man is that the natural knowledge of God, learning about God from nature and so forth, it doesn't tell us who God is and it doesn't tell us how we're saved. And those two questions, inside of those two questions, are almost all of the differences between all Christian denominations. How do we answer those two questions? Who is God 
How are we saved? Because, and, and it, with the first one especially, how much of Christ is divine? Well, you've got various heresies over the eons, over the centuries that have said, well, he's God but not human. He's divine but he's only a spirit. The Docetists and Manichaeans would say, if you saw Jesus and the 12 apostles walking on the beach, how many sets of footprints would you see? Only 12, because Jesus wasn't there. Um, also, Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Luther got the idea of the, the Lord as a, or the gospel rather, as a cloudburst. It's raining here, then it's raining there. So while it's here, get under it. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, remember the wonders which he has done, his signs and the judgments from his mouth. You descendants of Abraham, his servant, you sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And here judgments includes some miracles. Um, what miracles of God are judgments? Well, in the New Testament... I would think, for example, of um, uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree. Right? It's a rare one. In the New but in the Old Testament, are there miraculous judgments? Sodom? Gomorrah? Uh, the, how many times did an enemy attack Israel? And God said, just wait, I'll kill them all for you. You know, I was reading in Second Chronicles uh, yesterday... And I forget which king, if it was uh, maybe, was it Jehoshaphat's son or Joash's grandfather? It's in, the, in there somewhere in the teens where there was a big army coming after them going up a particular ravine. And God said, just, just, just go stand on the ravine and watch. And three different armies attack each other. It's the Ammon is coming, Moab is coming, and these, uh, what are they, the, 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 the Syrians, the Edomites are coming. And um, by the time Israel gets there to watch, it's just a valley full of dead bodies. Wow. Um, and, and that's, I, I think of that when I read then in Ezekiel, the valley of the dry bones. Is that where, where it was? Or it's a vision, so I don't know, maybe it wasn't anything, but yeah. Eight. He remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Um, what, what is a covenant? Contract. A contract. Yeah, that's a great definition. One word definition for covenant. How did they make them? I'm gonna, somebody want to make this covenant with me? Daryl, you want to make this covenant with me? Why don't you stand up and we'll make the covenant together, okay? All right. So, uh, Daryl here is the king of Judah, all right? And I'm the king of, I don't know, something else. Gerar, okay? We're going to make a covenant together that says, uh, I'm not going to cross this gulch. So, your shepherds are okay where they are, and my shepherds are okay with they, where they are. And you say, that's a pretty good idea. Let's make a covenant about this. So I take my knife and we kill the goat. Oh, I got to do this. So, you, so I slit the goat's throat, right? We catch the blood and so forth. 
And then we cut the goat out. And I saw this and I cut that and, and pretty soon I got two pieces of goat, right? So I'm going to throw, now you come and stand with me. So I'm going to throw half the goat over here. And I'm going to throw half the goat over here. And we've made this covenant together. And now we're going to walk through the pieces. And as we walk between these, by the way, the word covenant in Hebrew, barit, means to cut. So I'm going to cut this covenant. We're going to make, and we're going to say out loud as we walk between the pieces, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I break this covenant. And that's what we say. So then we walk through, can you imagine the smell? And then the flies. And, and we, you know, we walk through and be what happens to me. It happens to me if I break this covenant. Now we've walked through. Now we've cut the covenant. So we cut the covenant. Um, but when, we have, we have to remember though, when God makes a covenant, uh, he doesn't make us walk through with him. When God made the covenant with Abraham and the smoking fire pot went through all the animal pieces, did Abraham go through? No. The fire pot zipped through there by itself. God makes one-sided covenants. A, a, a secular reader in that time would read that and think, what, what, a, what a dumb covenant. You know, you're not holding him responsible for anything. But what was the sign of the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. Okay. Well, I, you know, it, it's, it's your covenant, O Lord, but we'll show that we're going to submit to the covenant by having all the guys be circumcised and so forth. So this is this covenant. All right. So he confirmed it to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. He said, to you I will give the land of Canaan, the territory you will possess. Um, so the Lord promised to make Abraham into this great nation and to send also, not just the nation, what's the important part of the covenant? Through you all nations will be blessed. That's not just land, that's Christ. Uh, we're going to bless, and because how are all nations blessed? How is Australia blessed by this covenant with Abraham back in 2004 BC? You know, well, but how is Australia blessed by the promise of Christ? Same way Minnesota is blessed. Same way that Syria was blessed. And the same way that Rome was blessed. Same way that Israel was blessed through the salvation that came through Christ alone. And then in the, in, uh, in the class we had on Sunday, uh, in Jeremiah 31, we saw the new covenant was promised, and the old translation of new covenant was New Testament. That's where we get the term from. You had scripture and you had New Testament prophesied. And then when we got the New Testament, then... We referred to the other one as Old Testament. That's where those words came from. That's from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 has been called the most important chapter of the Old Testament. Because of the, that, that's where the forgiveness of sins, free for nothing, which is a New Testament concept, is introduced, however. So all the way back in the days of Jeremiah. All right, verse 12. Here. Psalm 105, verses 12 and following. While they were few in number, who's they? They were few in number, just a little group of aliens in the land. 
Well, that's Abraham's family. Whether it's Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, the same thing applies, right? So they moved around from nation to nation, from one king to another people. Um, where are some places that Abraham moved? I mean, he didn't live in one spot. There is no one house, right? Well, Ur of the Chaldeans, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure if Abraham was like the border between Iraq and Kuwait. It's in there somewhere. It's way down there, though. Um, but Abraham moves to these places at different times. He, for a while, is in Egypt. That's where he has that incident. Oh, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Yeah, dangerous game to play. He moves into the, into the Negev. There's a place called Mamre near Sodom, where evidently there was a really great tree because he talks about the tree at Mamre and so forth. He actually lived in Kadesh for a while, which is interesting because when the Israelites got condemned to their 40 years of wandering, they were in Kadesh, the same place. And then Abraham lives at, uh, around the area of Beersheba. He lives in Gerar in Philistia for a while. And in Hebron, Hebron is where the, the cave was that he bought from the Hittites. That's the cave where Sarah got buried and Abraham later on. Cave of Machpelah. Now Isaac, different list, similar but different. Isaac also goes to Hebron in Egypt. The Negev, Mamre near Sodom, goes to Beersheba. Um, Isaac is the one who digs the well at Beersheba. He goes to Gerar and that's where he plays the same game. She's not my wife, she's my sister. That's with the king of Gerar. And then he goes to Hebron also. Most of Isaac's adult life seems to have been spent redigging Abraham's wells. Um, he had trouble with um, the Philistines, especially. They were jealous of his prosperity, and they would they would they would uh, cover and 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 fill in the wells that Abraham had dug, and Isaac had to go around and redo that. And these are not wishing wells like you'd find in an old Western town that's maybe five feet across and 30 feet down. These are things that were lined with stone and plaster and lime. They were sometimes 50 feet across and hundreds of feet down. They were often bottle-shaped so that your 20 or 30-foot opening would go down and then it would widen out. There's a huge reservoir of water down there, a, a cistern. It's amazing things. And Isaac dug and redug and re redug those, most of Isaac's adult life. Then Jacob, Jacob has to go up to Aram, to, to Laban, way up north of Damascus, to get his wife. And then his uh, father in law plays the old switcheroo on the wedding night, right? Leah for Rachel and so forth. Um, how long did, this is my catechism quiz question, how long did Jacob have to work after his wedding to Leah to marry, before he married Rachel? Before he married Rachel, he had to work seven days. Then he worked an additional seven years. But there was just a week in between those two weddings. So Leah got her marriage week and then Rachel got her marriage week. But he had had to work seven years ahead of Leah and then seven years after Rachel. And then after that, he starts collecting his own animals. 
And God made him prosper so much that Laban didn't want to let him go. He had too many. And that's where he starts playing that game with, I was stripping the branches so that the goats would, or the sheep would mate and with stripes and spots. And it's a confusing, I think kind of a probably evidence of superstition going on there. But uh, it's evidence that whatever, sometimes whatever mistakes a Christian makes, does, can God bless us anyway? Yeah, so let him fool around with thinking that peeling back the bark on a stick is going to get his animals to mate better, but God's going to bless him anyway. He did not allow anyone to oppress them, and he rebuked kings because of them. Do not touch my appointed ones, do not harm my prophets. You remember God rebuking Pharaoh? That's when Sarah got drawn into the harem. Same thing with Rebekah and the king of Gerar. Do not touch her and so forth. Um, after all, it wasn't long after that incident that Sarah got pregnant. So if we had the one story without that detail, there might be a question. Is Isaac Abraham's son or is he Pharaoh's son? Well, we know from scripture that Pharaoh didn't touch Sarah. All right. Here we go. Uh, then he summoned a famine on the land. He destroyed their entire food supply. He sent ahead of them a man sold as a slave, Joseph. So I have a, I have, I have a question about this, I think, in your uh, thing. How does the psalm display God's foreknowledge in planning about Israel getting into and then out of Egypt? I mean, notice how, how David here puts this. God, first, what did he do? He sends Joseph to Egypt. He uses his uh, uh, dirtbag brothers to sell him into slavery, uh, but he gets him to Egypt, right, through a caravan of, uh, what are they, Ishmaelites? A, 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 a caravan of resin, mastic, and rock rose gum, or whatever the items are. I had to translate that when I was in college, and I always remember my translation and not the NIV, but that's okay. Um, and they take him, they sell him to, uh, to a guy in Egypt, um, Potiphar. And uh, Potiphar's wife is evidently not the nicest bride in the world. And she's got the hots for Joseph. And it ends up getting Joseph thrown into prison. But he starts interpreting dreams in prison as he had with his family. And pretty soon... Uh, not pretty soon from Joseph's point of view, but after a while, he does rise to power in Egypt. But in the meantime, look at what we, what we learn about him. They hurt his feet with chains. His throat was clamped in an iron collar until the time when his predictions came true. Remember, uh, Moses was born maybe just... 250, 300 years after Joseph died. And I think that some of the oral traditions about Grandpa Joseph were still around. The Israelites remembered certain things about Joseph. Um, I, uh, I shared with a colleague um, again this weekend, he asked about something in my life. and I, um, I, uh, There was a time when for a, a brief period, a couple of nights, and days. I was homeless. I don't know if any of you know that. Um, but uh, uh, that had to do with uh, 
events in my family at a particular moment in my life. And, um, uh, and there are little details about a person's life. You know, uh, do, when do you find those things out? And Joseph, you know, doesn't really talk about it in scripture. But there was a memory in the family about things that had happened, you know, back to Grandpa Joseph once upon a time. And this business about the, 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 the chains on the feet and the iron collar on his throat really tells you how he got treated in Egypt. And how, and, and remember, he was in prison. So not only was he, although maybe the prison doors weren't the greatest. You know, I don't know what their locking technology was like. So maybe you kind of had to chain a guy up to keep him. You know, we, we have iron doors and stuff on our prisons. Maybe they didn't have, you know, maybe they just had wooden doors. and So they used iron chains instead. I don't know. But now let's get to the plagues. So uh, the king sent for him and released him. Rulers of the peoples set him free. He made him master of his house and ruler over all his possessions to bind his officials by his will and teach his elders wisdom. So the same thought. Joseph was bound with a chain and now Joseph binds with his own will and teaches Pharaoh's elders wisdom. Um, then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. Why the land of Ham? What does Ham mean here? Is that where the Hormel factory was? Sons of Noah. Yeah, uh, Egypt is one of the sons of, of uh, a, a grandson of Noah. Uh, so the land of Ham. Then the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes. I don't know how many people lived in Egypt in the 1400s BC, but I know that there were 2 million Israelites. That's a lot of mouths to feed over in Goshen um, and a lot of a big workforce too. Um, he turned the Egyptians' hearts so that they hated his people. They dealt deceitfully with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them his warning signs in the land of Ham. And now on your sheet, I have on the, on the second side, the order of the plagues. I have them the way that they're listed in Exodus. Um, what would this be? Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, I think. That in, anyway, there's a bunch of chapters of the plagues. This is the order on your sheet. So the plagues begin with blood frogs, then gnats, then flies, uh, I use the word moraine. What does moraine mean? It's a cattle disease. I don't know. Whatever it is. And boils. And then hail, locusts, and darkness. And finally, the plague of the firstborn. The EHV, rather than using uh, gnats, says lice. And I'm not sure I dislike that as a translation. That's probably pretty good. Um, it certainly would be a terrible plague, wouldn't it? Um, uh, so anyway, this is how, I want us to just notice how the psalm groups the plagues, because it's a little bit different. Rather than ten plagues, the psalm reduces the number, and I want you to tell me why, and changes the order only slightly, really very slightly, and then omits a couple, but what's going on? So he sent darkness... Where is darkness in the list? It's second to last, right? Yeah. However, 
Darkness and the plague of the firstborn are the two worst plagues. And so I think what David is doing here is he takes the two worst ones and he makes them the bookends of the whole group of plagues, the, the worst ones. So he starts with darkness. Um, and then he picks it up in order. So it became extremely dark because Israel did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood. What plague is that? That's number one. And then their land swarmed with frogs, even in the rooms of their kings. Um, this is the only picture I've got in this whole group of slides, I realized. <laughs> I didn't get time to do more than that, I'm sorry. I was going to have a lot more. So, so far we have this, right? Darkness is first, then blood, frogs. And we're in order, though, after darkness. We'll come back to this slide. Then he spoke, and swarms of flies came. There were lice throughout their borders. He gave them hail instead of rain, with blazing lightning throughout their land. Then he struck down their vines and fig trees, and he broke down the trees within their borders. Well, wait a second. How did he break down vines and fig trees and trees? Well, that was still the hail. It was the same storm. Hail is pretty damaging. What, what plague comes to New Ulm whenever there's been a hailstorm? I was going to say the out-of-town roof repair guys. <laughs> well, here we have... Uh, uh, the, the psalm actually combines the flies and the gnats. Um, I got the line in the wrong place there. And then hail is next. So we skipped over to plagues, right? We skipped the cattle disease and moraine. We skipped over boils. But everything else is still in order. And then he spoke, and the locusts came, grasshoppers without number. Does, does David not know about animals, or does he know something that many of us don't? What's the relationship between locusts and grasshoppers? They're the same animal. Did you know that? Under certain um, weather conditions, grasshoppers, who normally do not uh, swarm together, grasshoppers are solitary creatures, but under certain conditions, and I forget if it's an especially rainy spring or whatever it is, there's a chemical imbalance that happens in grasshoppers and they begin to become gregarious. They swarm. That's what a locust is. There's no difference. A locust is simply a grasshopper at a, because of a certain weather pattern. That's where, grasshop, that's where locusts come from. Now locusts can breed more locusts for a little while, but eventually it'll, it'll all end. Um, when did it happen here? Yeah, it, it happened twice. In the 30s, it wasn't so bad. In the 1870s, it was four years of, of, of Old Testament-level plagues when the grasshoppers were eating the suspenders off of farmers as they walked between the barn and the house. The, the tack was eaten off of the horses. Um, fields were leveled, and it was four years. And it, by the way, it went from Missoula, Montana, to St. Louis, Missouri, and for four years. That was the band of, of, of what happened here. It was bad enough in the 30s where it was you know, part of the Dust Bowl, 
um, but in the 1870s. And I, I'm, always, I'm always curious about that. When old westerns depict the Wild West, they stay away from the Upper West in the early 1870s because there are no stories except the locusts. I've never seen a western talk about the locusts. Wouldn't it be amazing to see a shootout and the guy pulls the trigger and a grasshopper jumps out of the gun or something like that or, or a grasshopper gets in between the hammer and the... Th- anyway, never seen that. I don't know. So here we have uh, the locusts, seven, and then the plague of the firstborn is... Uh, six, rather, and the firstborn is seven. We've already done darkness. So why do you think that David clips the plagues down to seven from ten? Well... Ten is the actual number of plagues that there were. It's also in the Bible, uh, um, spiritually speaking, a number of completeness, God's complete wrath. Here, we're emphasizing God's power and holiness. And so David uses the number of holiness, which is seven, by combining and kind of ignoring and so forth. Is that an okay thing to do? Yeah. Just emphasizes a different quality. Um, in these in these plagues, so, and yeah, we skipped we skipped the disease on the cattle and the boils or what we skipped in the, in the two. All right, now we're getting to the to the toward the end, the fulfillment of the promise, some unexpected miracles, and I wonder if you would just I don't know if we should just shout out if you see one. How many of these are unexpected miracles that God blessed His people with as they came out of Egypt? He brought Israel out with silver and gold. Yeah, they plundered the Egyptians, right? And the Egyptians gave them. From among their tribes, no one stumbled. Another one, right? Uh, between, between Zoan and the Red Sea, no Israelite died. They got out of Egypt. Moses got the entire group out of Egypt without losing a single, a single person. Not a man, woman, child, not a cat. They all got out of Egypt. Once they got into the Sinai and started grumbling, it was a different story. But God got all of them out of Egypt. Um, Egypt was glad when they went out uh, because fear of Israel had fallen on them, maybe even finally fallen on them. He spread out a cloud as a canopy. You're walking through the desert. What's your number one concern? It's so hot. What did God do? I will be your shade. Right? And then you're in the desert with no electricity and it's nighttime. God says, I will be your nightlight. You know, the fire to give light at night. They asked and he brought quail. Oh, that is such a pleasant verse. (laughs) When you read what actually happened in in the book of Numbers, um, God threw quail at them when they complained and said, it's going to come out your noses. You're going to hate this. Uh, but he did bring them quail. And he satisfied them with the bread from heaven, which is manna, of course. He opened the rock and water gushed out, another blessing, unexpected. It flowed in the desert like a river. Um, completely unexpected source of water. And... The apostle, is it Paul or is it the writer of the Hebrews tells us that that rock followed them around 
They had water wherever they went. Now, whether the water source changed, and first it was the rock over here, and then it was the rock over on North 20th, and then it was the rock out on the exit out to 68, and then it was the rock uh, down by the quarry, or, or, or if it was this one rock that kept moving around after them. The Bible describes it two different ways, and I'm okay. It's a miracle either way, Right? But uh, very interesting that God, that they never, they never wanted for fresh water. They always had fresh water. Because he remembered his holy word to Abraham, his servant, and brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the work of other peoples. So in, what's the most, the, the, the biggest, splashiest possession Israel grabbed when they entered the land of Canaan. They didn't build it, but they got it. And now whenever you think of Israel, you think of that first. What is it? It's a city. It's Jerusalem. The Jebusites built that city. David just captured it. But that's, that's the work of other peoples. So that they could keep his statutes and observe his laws. Somebody say praise the Lord in Hebrew for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can we sing it though? Would you mind? You go back and sing this one. So I'm going to use this tune. The mighty Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So that note, tres, that's our starting note. Da, 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 da. Right? Let's try it. Israel entered Egypt. Jacob lived in the land of Ham. God sent darkness and made the land dark. For had they not rebelled against his words, he turned their water into blood. The land teemed with frogs. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and lice throughout their country. The mighty Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He turned their rain to hail with lightning throughout their land. He spoke and locusts came, grasshoppers without number. Then he struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their manhood. He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. Glory, oh, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. The mighty Lord is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.